great reminder that song is of just how unbelievable the grace of God truly is when we compare our actions to his faithfulness. And not only that song, but also this book called The Book of Judges that we're going to be looking at throughout the next number of weeks also is a great reminder of that. Um, So welcome to uh, week two of this series. And um, if you missed last week, as always, encourage you to uh, listen online. If you are traveling this summer and can't be here, um, all of our sermons will be, as always, on our website, and you can download them there or just listen to them there. Also, as always, want to make uh, uh, point out our uh, colored insert in your service folder. Please uh, do take that out and allow that to be a guide for you as we uh, study from Judges chapter 3 um, today. Um, I've been trying to do a good job of hiding it, but some of you might have noticed uh, that I'm slightly limping. Um, and, uh, you know, Advil does a lot of good on a Sunday morning to uh, not allow people to, to see you limp too much. Um, anyway, what, what happened was that on Tuesday I was uh, using the bench press at the gym and um, I was kind of talking with someone I was lifting with as I was pulling a 45-pound plate off of the bar and not remembering that there was a 25-pound plate in front of it. And so as I pulled off the 45, which is wider, the 25-pound plate came and and fell and landed right on the top of my foot uh, from about this high. And uh, thankfully, I don't think anything is broken, but um, I haven't been able to count on my foot (laughs) at all. Um, The kids have been wanting me to, to play catch, to play basketball, whatever, and it's like, all right, this is your chance, Ezra, to beat your dad because I cannot move. Um, I haven't been able to do anything because I couldn't count um, on my foot, and it's amazing when you can't count on something that you've always counted on, how big of a deal that is, right? I'm leading somewhere. (laughs) This series is all about a God that you can always count on. And it's not my foot's fault. I dropped the 25-pound plate on it. It's not my foot's fault, and yet it's still your foot of a nature that things can happen that you can't count on it, right? Not with God. Nothing can happen where you cannot count on him and his faithfulness, his promises. And that's just our first fill-in-the-blank today, which is a reminder of our series theme, that God remains faithful, unswerving, dependable, true to his promises, even as his people are unfaithful. Like who is unfaithful? Like me. Like you, I would guess. Like the people who lived 3,000 years ago, written about in the book of Judges. And there's this this cycle that we talked about last week that I just want to remind you about this week. It's pictured for you here on the screen, the cycle that happens in the book of Judges. Essentially, here's what would happen is that God gave his rules, his direction for life, and as people became sort of uh, comfortable, they began to disobey disregard God's rules and God's direction. And so after a while of this disobeying, they fell away, and God would allow allow a disaster to happen, is the word that I'm using to keep the D's all in there. God would allow a disaster to happen that would essentially be something to wake them up from their spiritual slumber. Like, hey, 
things are not okay here, and you haven't recognized this, so I'm going to allow something to happen. Most of the time, this disaster in the book of Judges was some other country nearby that would overtake the Israelites and oppress them. And then after being oppressed for a while, years and decades, all of a sudden, seemingly taking too long, the people would then are sort of come to the conclusion, you know what, we should probably change our ways. This isn't so good. We should probably listen to the Lord and repent and follow him. And as they did, God would send deliverance. <clears throat> now, how would God in the book of Judges send deliverance? How would he deliver his people from the Moabites and Hittites and Amorites and all the ites, okay? How would he do that? Well, he didn't come down in a cloud he didn't send fireballs from heaven to knock out the enemy. What he would do would send a judge. I, I talked last week that we were going to define what a judge is this week, and I even left a blank for you in your sermon notes. A judge, essentially, first of all, is not a guy in a black robe with a gavel. Don't think that. A judge in the Bible and in this book is, this is the best word, a deliverer. Is maybe a savior with a small s because we reserve savior with big s for Jesus, but a savior with a small s. And essentially he was a military leader. And so what would happen is the judge would be appointed from the Israelites he or she would first remind people, you got to get out of your spiritual apathy and slumber. And he would talk about repentance. And then as the people repented, God would send the judge, would enable and strengthen the judge to go and to lead God's people against whatever enemy was oppressing them and give them the military victory. We're going to start looking at these judges this week. But before we do... Just wondering, um, do you think you, you would possibly be a little overwhelmed if you were appointed as judge? So I'm supposed to help change people's spiritual apathy and lead a military conquest, okay? Um, I could imagine judges feeling a little bit overwhelmed and underqualified. Have you ever felt Overwhelmed by something put in your path? Have you ever felt underqualified to face something that you were forced to face? Um, I remember having our first child, and I remember being at the hospital. It was a great experience. Um, doctors were great, nurses were nice, um, very pain free for the husband. Not so pain-free for my wife. <laughs> but then we were leaving, and um, we checked out of the hospital room, and one of the nurses accompanied us down to the car uh, that I had pulled around into the, the lobby, uh, front parking lot area near the lobby. And uh, the nurse actually helped us sort of buckle uh, Ezra into the car seat uh, um, correctly and then helped us actually put the car seat into the car correctly. And then when she was done, something happened that obviously I knew was happening, but gave me an overset, would happen, but gave me an overwhelming sense of, of feeling unqualified, which was, she said, it's great to meet you guys. 
And then she left. <laughs> and then, first child, I'm thinking, really? You're just leaving me with this, you know, three-day-old life? I mean, the government requires a year almost of training and, and study and, and behind the wheel to get your driver's license, and you don't need any of that to take a baby home. Just a wristband that says you're the dad, right? And I felt in that moment very overwhelmed and underqualified. In fact, it, it paralyzed me for a moment. I remember driving home that day and being overwhelmed even with driving having this new life in my hands, so to speak. Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever been called to something that you weren't supposed to get out of, that you shouldn't get out of, but felt overwhelmed by it? Felt underqualified? Maybe it was a new job initiative or project that you're put in charge of. And you, you knew you had to, but you just were overwhelmed by it. Maybe it's family circumstances. Maybe it's a marriage challenge. Maybe it was, uh, I think this comes up a lot, challenges with adult children and choices that they make, and you just feel overwhelmed and underqualified. You just feel like you want to throw up your hands sometimes. Um, maybe it's an attitude that you had, and you knew what the right attitude was, to be thankful, to be content, not to worry, to be forgiving. But even though you knew what you were supposed to do, that doesn't mean that you didn't feel overwhelmed and underqualified to do it. And you know, one of the things that happens when we feel overwhelmed and underqualified, and I'm guessing it's happened to you either in big ways or in small ways, it's our next fill-in. One of the things that happens is that we're tempted to respond with excuses. That instead of facing the challenge that makes us feel so inadequate, instead we just sort of bypass the challenge by making excuses. Excuses that maybe initially make us feel better. <laughs> but do they make you feel better in the long term? Excuses in your heart. I don't think they do. Because at a certain point, you know that you're just making excuses for not doing or rising up to whatever it is that God has called you to, a situation, an attitude, a lifestyle, and you know in your heart that you chickened out. You know that you've been weak. You know that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing or you should be doing stuff that you're not doing. And so that type of dealing with difficulty just it doesn't give long-term peace. It doesn't give long-term satisfaction. There's got to be a better way, huh? Because one thing you can know is that if God called you to something, an attitude, a lifestyle, um, an action, he called you to that as a blessing. And one thing you can know is that excuses are not the way to handle it. So, so how do we handle it? Well, that's what we're going to look at or in what we're going, to be, we're going to learn about as we look at one of the, it's the first judges mentioned in the book of Judges. It's actually the second judge mentioned and his name is Ehud. Anyone heard of Ehud before? A few people? 
Well, let me give you a little bit of background. Um, so Israel was in one of those cycles of disobedience where for about um, 18 years they in fact had been oppressed by the Moabites and the Moabite king whom we're going to meet in just a little bit. And so with that in mind, we turn to Judges chapter 3, verse 15, as we see the Israelites sort of deal with their oppression by the Moabites. We read, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them, the Lord did, a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. Now, a left-handed man. Why does God allow for that detail to be mentioned and preserved? It doesn't seem to make any sense, right? So who cares if he's left-handed, all right? Who cares? Well, here's the thing. When, when you dig into the Hebrew, you realize that the, the, the more literal way to translate left-handed is that he was restricted on his right hand or restricted as to his right hand. And when you look at that phrase, and almost every Hebrew scholar that I've read, as they they look at this Hebrew, what they would say is that Ehud was not left-handed because he has a proclivity to his left hand, that his left hand was his stronger side. It wasn't because his dad made him bat left-handed at two years old because he knew his path to the major leagues would be better if he was a left-handed hitter. It had nothing to do with that. The reason Ehud was left-handed and why God preserved that sort of detail is because he could not use his right hand because his right hand was restricted. That is, Ehud was handicapped on his right hand. Ehud could not use his right hand. And so he had to use his left hand. Verse 16. The Israelites sent Ehud with tribute or with a tax to Eglon, king of Moab. So every year, they, as being people oppressed and captive by Moabites, had to give this big amount of taxes or tribute to the king. His name was Eglon. Now we learn a little bit about Eglon, verse 16. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh, just as a, uh, as a note. Um, most people would have strapped their sword to their left thigh because they're right-handed. Most everyone would have strapped their sword to their left thigh. Ehud strapped it to the right thigh because he was forced to be left-handed again because his right-handed was crippled. His right hand was crippled. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now, we're just getting into lots of great details today, right? Um, Why would God say this? In fact, you know, couldn't God have been a little bit more politically correct? Like, Eglon, he was husky, or Eglon, he was big-boned, or something like that. But instead, we get this idea, I think, from the, the, the scripture here, that Eglon, you know, think Jabba the Hutt, okay? Star Wars, In fact, I was talking to Mitch Kicker after service yesterday. He went to St. Croix High School, and he said one of their pastors there always said, kind of made some sort of, uh, said King King Eglon, and would always, whenever they taught this section, would always make him sound big, okay? Why this? Well, 
I think that Eglon really was a metaphor for the people of, the, of what happens when you disobey God. And a, a, a metaphor for how they were oppressed not just by a king, but by an unkempt, unhealthy, kind of, the, the idea in the Hebrew is kind of gross man who did not take care of himself. And yet this is the guy that was over them because of their sin. Verse 18. After Ehud had presented the tax, he went on, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. So he didn't come by himself. He came with some other Israelites who were the ones who were holding and carrying all the tax, and, and they left. But as they were leaving and going home at the idols near Gilgal, a town, Ehud by himself turned back. So Ehud decides to go back by himself to Eglon, and he said to him, I have a secret message for you, O king, which again seems like, you know, like, are these kids? I mean, are they playing, you know, whisper around the campfire or something? Or what's going on here? I have a secret message for you. (laughs) I think, again, the translation makes it sound a little more juvenile than what it really was. Um, Likely, what King Eglon thought was that Ehud, now by himself, might have been some sort of a traitor, that he was going to share with Eglon, some sort of national secret that would allow Eglon to stay in power, that Ehud was kind of aligning himself with Eglon. And so the king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. So now you have Ehud with a sword strapped to his right thigh by himself with King Eglon. And let me just say this. This never happens. Those attendants They were bodyguards. No good bodyguard would allow some foreigner, even one with a secret, to have a secret or private meeting with the king. Do you know why this likely happened? Because the bodyguards were like, he's handicapped which again is nothing wrong with being handicapped. But what threat is he going to give to the king? And by the way, we looked at his left thigh, and there's no sword there. So they allow Ehud. God using Ehud's handicap to have this secret, private meeting with the king. Verse 20, Ehud then approached King Eglon, while he was sitting alone, again alone, in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. Remember, it's a secret. And so the king rose from his seat. Ehud then, as he was telling Eglon the secret, come here, I got a secret for you. Tells him the secret, reaches with his left hand, draws the one and a half foot sword and plunges it into the king's belly. Verse 22. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. And Ehud, this guy who was oppressing the Israelites because they were straying from God, this this sort of gross, yucky king, Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Did you know this was in the Bible? 
you need to read your Bibles. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in there that's just interesting, amazing. You know what happened next? Well, the attendants didn't come in right away, in part, the Bible says, because they thought that Eglon was using the bathroom, all right? And so Ehud has a chance to escape. He goes back to his Israelite people. He tells them, I've just killed the king of Moab. The people rejoice. They see it as a perfect time to then strike as a nation against the Moabites as they're probably going to be in somewhat of disarray with the king dead. They rush to the Jordan River, which was the Moabite way to get back home to Moab. They cut off their only passageway over the Jordan River. They have a war. They kill over 10,000 Moabites with God's blessing. And they're no longer oppressed. And God delivers the Israelites through a one-handed judge named Ehud. Why did God do it that way? <laughs> Why didn't God use some perfectly healthy, strong, and dashingly good-looking military leader? Because God was wanting to teach his people. And he's wanting to teach us 3,000 years later. I started this message by talking about times where you feel overwhelmed and underqualified. And especially overwhelmed and underqualified in areas of life and attitudes where God has called you to a certain attitude and you just feel like you cannot accomplish that, you cannot do that, you cannot be that. Did, did Ehud have an excuse? Could he have an, had an excuse? Really? I'm the military leader. Uh, God, um, I don't know if you know or not, but I have one hand and it's not my good one. It's my left hand. And I'm supposed to be the military leader that's going to lead your people. Ehud could have had an excuse to not do what God had called him to do. And guess what he would have been doing? Sinning. Even though it was a big call and a difficult challenge, it would have been sinning. Can I ask, do you and I ever make excuses that make us feel better for not doing what we've been called to do? I think we do. And they're very subtle, but they help us sinfully. Um, here's one that I struggle with that maybe some of you might struggle with too. And so the way that I say it that makes me feel better, but it's really just and sometimes an excuse, is this. Um, yeah, I might overwork, but I'm a perfectionist. I just want things done well. Is it okay to be a perfectionist? Sure. Does God have, you know, is God organized? I'd like to think he is. Can that be an excuse for overworking? Can that be used as an excuse 
to spend too much time in one area of life that doesn't need that much time, and maybe even to put unrealistic expectations on people who might not be as perfectionist as you are? It could be. How about this one? Um, have you ever used this? I'm not a morning person. I'm just not a morning person. Now, not all of us like the mornings, but you know why people say that phrase? It's an excuse. It's like kind of your license to be crabby and rude to people until noon. Because God made me this way, I'm just not a morning person, right? What we're really doing is we're making an excuse for sin. Or how about when we face cultural things, like I think of sports schedules, or I I think of... um, you know, things at school that, that kids go, go after that maybe um, get them out of whack. Um, I think of materialism, especially in an area like this, and we say things like, that's just the way it is around here. Well, that, may that be the way that most people are doing things? Yes, but if it doesn't allow for good priorities, is that's just the way it is around here a good excuse? It's just an excuse. Um, sometimes single adults will use the excuse of, um, for relationship decisions, uh, the excuse, I'm lonely. First, I, I want to say that uh, I've never had to experience not having a mate as a, an adult, and I can only imagine how difficult that would be. But let me just say, it's, it's a lie of the devil to think that I'm lonely is a license to do things that are not correct or to make relationship decisions that are not good. I mean, we could have, there's a million of these, right? There's a million of these things that we can try to convince ourselves that my overwhelmed and and unqualified feeling allows me to make decisions that aren't godly. You know, that's just the way I was raised. That's just the way that I am. It's my dad's fault. You know, all that kind of stuff. The funny thing is, while we allow ourselves to feel better about these types of things, you would never let someone else get away with that. For instance, imagine that you have a first grader and she was bit by her classmate on the playground. And it was of such a nature that there was a meeting called with you, the other family, and the teacher. And the other family with Johnny, who bit your daughter, comes in. And instead of apologizing or things like that, the the parents just say um, to you, Well, you guys have to understand something. Johnny's a biter. He just bites people. We've tried to change him. We've tried to work on it. I think we've come to the conclusion that he's just a biter. We're just going to have to deal with it. And you'd be like, that's not a good excuse. That's not an okay excuse. He may have a proclivity to biting, but he can do better. You can't just let that go. You've got to work on it. He may not be perfect, he may bite again, but to just give in to that with some sort of excuse that that's just the way he is, it's no good. Ehud could have had an excuse. I'm left-handed. It's the way it is. But you know why that was no good of an excuse? It goes back to, to verse 15 on the screen, I think. We stuck? Well, verse 15 says this. 
Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he, that is God, gave them a deliverer. You know why left-handedness and and handicap was not an excuse? Because God called him clearly to be the deliverer, and so that is what he was supposed to do. Would he have had questions? Absolutely. Would it have been hard? I would think so. Would he feel underqualified? I would have. But could have any of those things, should have them been excuses? Not at all. Because when God calls you to something, an attitude, an action, an activity, excuses are not needed. And excuses aren't okay. That's our second point for today. That God's power, if you're following along on your sheet, God's power is greater than our weakness. God's power is greater than our weakness. You know, when you look at the book of Judges, this pattern comes up over and over and over again. Um, I want to give you a little preview about the Judges. God chose the poor, the underqualified, and the outcast. So Ehud, the great judge, was a handicap, was handicapped. Deborah, we're going to look at next week, she was a woman. Nothing wrong with being a woman, but in that culture, you've got to understand that they were viewed more as possessions or as second-class citizens, and yet God raises up a woman to be the leader. Gideon, who we'll look at, he was a runt, weak and small, from the, the, the weakest tribe of the Israelites. Jephthah, he was part of organized crime for part of his life. And Samson, you think strong, but the reality that we'll see is that Samson was a violent, dysfunctional sex abuser. Honestly. Why did God do these things? Why did God call Ehud to something that seemed greater than what he could accomplish? Why does God call you to an activity, an action, an attitude that feels overwhelming and bigger than what you can accomplish? Here's why. Because he wanted in the book of Judges to lead you not to the power of his judges, but to the grace of God. If we come away from today's message thinking Ehud was a really great guy, we miss the point. That the reason God has preserved Ehud and the book of Judges is to bring us back again and again and again to the power of God's love, the God's grace, his faithfulness. God is the hero of Judges. God's grace through a handicapped, left-handed guy is the reason why the Israelites were delivered. God is the strength when Ehud was overwhelmed and underqualified. Who's the hero in your life? It better not be your wife or husband. It better not be you. Like, I just gotta try harder. Yeah, maybe you do. Maybe. But that in and of itself is not going to do anything if it's not for the power of God in you and with you. There's one thing that none of us are. 
none of us are perfect. And even as you maybe hopefully have a little more strength and encouragement through this message to not make excuses for what God has called you to, to but, but to face them and to go after what God's will, I'm going to tell you, you're still not going to do it perfectly. You can do better. It's not just that you're a biter and you're just a biter. You can do better, but you're not going to be perfect. But Jesus was something of a, a greater Ehud. Huh? And he came down to earth and God's son, and it wasn't just that his right hand was bound, but, but both hands were bound. And on the cross, through his death and resurrection, it was as if Jesus took a sword and plunged it into the big, fat belly of sin and death. And the devil. And for imperfect people who have a proclivity to make excuses and to avoid what God has called us to, God was faithful. And through Jesus, he's forgiven us all of those sins. God is our hero. Jesus is the greatest hero in your life. Jesus is not only your hero for eternity, he is your power and strength right now. And so what is there left for us to do in thankfulness? Get rid of excuses, our last fill-in. Get rid of your excuses and call them what they are. In whatever area of life is true for you, I don't know your life, you know your heart, you know your attitudes, I don't know what it is for you, I don't know where you're making excuses, but wherever you are, making excuses for sin or misplaced priorities, get rid of them. Because they are sin. To fear when God wants you to trust. To take the easy way out instead of doing what God has called you to do. God's ability to use you has nothing to do with your ability. Your ability to fight sin has nothing to do with your ability. It has everything to do with his, with God's strength. And so, don't look at your crippled hand. Look at Jesus. Don't look at the fat king in front of you. Look at Jesus' victory. Don't rely on the dagger on your left thigh. Rely on the strength and power that Jesus showed in his victory over Satan and he's promised for you and I. Instead of being overwhelmed, let God's faithfulness and grace in those moments, let it overwhelm you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word preserved throughout the centuries. And dear Lord, we confess that there are times where we have been content to avoid your will and to make excuses for the decisions that we've made. Dear Lord, help us in this moment first by reminding us of your forgiveness and then by giving us the strength to fight, to not be content, but to fight against sin 
in response to your victory over sin. We pray this in Jesus' name.